The scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 10, 23-33. The word of God speaks to us. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. This is God's word to us. All right. Hey, good evening, everyone. How are you guys? Good, good. Good to see you all. My name is John Reiner. I'm one of the pastors here at Frontline, and um, I'm excited to open the Word of God tonight. The whole day has been a real, just uh, mo- like momentum building and um, joyful. We got to baptize four folks this morning. Um, we got to baptize three more tonight, and it's just been a really, really fun day. So I want to add my welcome to Garrett's, in particular to any family or friends of those who got baptized. Thanks for being here tonight. Thanks for taking time out and, um, and being here at Frontline with us. We are in a series in the book of 1 Corinthians. We've been in this book for several months, and we're going to um, finish up this little section at the end of chapter 10. So um, let's pray together, and we'll dive in. Amen? All right, so Father, it's just so good to call you Father, because that's who you are. And we say, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Be revered tonight. Be honored tonight in all that's said and done. Keep me from saying anything that would be um, in error or unhelpful. And would you lead us into truth tonight? It just, it strikes me that um, it's an amazing thing that you know every single story, the secrets of every single heart in the room, and you love each and every one. And there's not one that you've forgotten, that you've bypassed. And even tonight, you are pursuing with love and with kindness. And I just ask you would open our hearts up to your word, and you would lead us into truth again, we pray. We give you our hearts in this moment, we pray in Jesus' name. And hey, everybody said together, amen, amen. Well, um, if you know anything about me, you know I've got two sons. Two sons I'm super proud of. I love a whole, whole lot. I love being a dad to them. I love that, that uh, they're my sons. And um, they are like um, older teenagers, right? So my oldest is Alec, and he's 19. And my youngest is Joel. He's 18, senior in high school and about to launch out, which is means I'm, yes, my wife and I are in like this empty nester phase going on. And uh, my oldest goes to the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville. Anybody from Arkansas? 
Okay, we've got one. Look at that, loud and proud, just bringing it. Hey, I, I hadn't spent a whole lot of time in Arkansas, but it is just a beautiful place. Northwest Arkansas, it, it is amazing. I'm just like growing to love it more and more. Um, it's also a very weird place. I just want to say that kind of out loud. And, here, and here's where we go. Yeah, he's, he's out, gone. Um, so, the co- you know, the sort of standard parent weekend, college visit, and part of that is going to a University of Arkansas football game, which we're really looking forward to. But there's this whole experience where they call the hogs. Familiar with that, I'm sure. Call the hogs. Just get the scene here if you're not familiar with it. There's, I don't know, 75,000 people at random and spontaneous times throughout the game will raise their arms all in unison. Somehow they know when to do this. I, I, I wasn't prompted. There was no sort of bulletin given to me. Raise their arms. Whoa, pig, suey. And then they do it again. One second time. And I'm, I'm looking around. Okay. And then they do it a third time. Whoa, pig, suey. And I'm sort of blacking out a little bit because it's like, what's happening to me? And this is calling the hogs. It's like SeaWorld and Shamu, you know, Shamu, Shamu, Shamu. Like there's worshiping the whale at SeaWorld. There was worshiping these hogs at Arkansas. I literally looked over at my, my wife with jaw dropped and I said, our son has joined a cult. <laughs> and this thing is statewide and they've got hats that are hogs, hog hats on and they're drinking a lot and smiling and laughing and high five and then it goes again, right? And there's so many questions I have. Questions like, we've called these hogs many times and they're not coming. Where are these supposed hogs? Do they exist? Who came up with this and who supported it when it was invented? There's just all these kinds of questions, right? For the record, I I never could kind of get myself to do the hog call, you know, forgive me. Uh, Couldn't get myself to do it. My heart wasn't in it, you know, but I probably will. He's there for four years. It's probably going to happen. I'll be doing that whole thing. My other son, God bless him, is going to Oklahoma State University. Go Pucks. And uh, I, I don't think that they call hogs there. No? But I got to call out the, the whole, I've been a Pucks fan for a while, but they, the waving wheat, you know, I mean, it's pretty to look at, but with football, it's got to be more violent, you know? These are, my, these are my thoughts, random thoughts. Okay, why do I tell you all that? When a kid launches out of the house, 18 years old or whatever, all of a sudden, there is this flood of freedoms. It happens gradually, you know, through teen years, driving, you know, these kinds of independences. But at 18, in that launch point, there's like this flood, a tidal wave of decisions to be made in gray areas, debatable matters, right? How to spend time, money, relationships, friendships, parties, all all that stuff. And if you're following Jesus, you're trying to sort out how to process these things. How do you process these things? Now, the Bible clearly forbids certain things. I want to be explicit. Porn is not a gray area. Sexual sin is not a gray area, right? Cheating on tests, cheating on your taxes, these things are not gray areas. Getting wasted is not a gray area. 
But whether you're 18 or 78 or anywhere in between, um, there are gray areas or these debatable matters that we need to think biblically about, but that the Bible doesn't explicitly address. So the question is, does the Bible speak to these things? Does it guide us to make decisions in these areas? And the answer to that is a resounding yes. See, the Bible is a, it's a miraculous book. Just the fact that we've got it in our laps and in our language and martyrs who died so that we could have this book right in front of us and it speaks to the 21st century American person. It transcends all of time and all cultures. It spoke to the Corinthians, but, but it's for us here and now. It's a miracle, the Bible. And our passage today is the last section of a three-chapter thought stream, chapters 8, 9, and 10. And what Paul is doing here is he's giving the Corinthians guidelines, or if you will, ground rules for Christian freedom. And today's text is the grand finale. This is the wrap-up to this section. And the way I thought about giving this message is as if I was like with, with my family on a family night, and I was trying to help like give my teenage sons a, a grid or questions to ask themselves as they're sorting through these gray areas, not just in college, but beyond. And uh, I don't know about your kids, if you have kids, but anytime I sort of, you know, dispense wisdom to my sons, my teenage sons, they always just come right to my feet. They bow down and they say, please, Father Mole, please, would you bless me with your wise and wonderful wisdom from thy bounty? It's amazing, uh, really, and I'm honored by it. So five guidelines, five guidelines for decision-making found in chapters 8 through 10. Two of those five guidelines are going to be in the text to that we deal with tonight. That's going to be the majority of the time. The other three, I just want to review the great work that um, Chad and Kevin and Josh have done over the last several weeks um, by way of review and just teaching so you can see all five at once and it can be hopefully a helpful grid for you. One other thing I need to say by way of introduction, it's important. All throughout these chapters, um, Paul is really intentional about avoiding a couple of ditches, errors, Things that um, he, he knows we need to avoid, but they're e easily fallen into. Um, the one ditch or error is legalism. Legalism is adding new rules that the Bible doesn't give, right? Um, he avoids those. He avoids adding new rules um, so, because he doesn't want to just make more like uptight, moral, prudish, pharisaical, Ned Flanders types. He, you know, the world doesn't need more of those. He's avoiding the ditch of legalism. We need to, too, not adding new rules to the Bible. The other ditch he avoids, though, is license. And license is uh, Paul's not going to let them just do whatever they want to do and call it good, kind of punting on holiness. We are going to avoid those ditches, too, okay? It's important to, to know that as we're walking through this. So, chapter 8, by review, the context is how to handle food sacrificed to idols. That was a big deal in their day. The first guideline is love for brother, found in chapter 8. Question is, would it stunt another believer's growth as we're thinking through this gray area? And you can fill in the blank of whatever that might be for you. They've been defending themselves with this theological defense, all things are lawful, 
We're free in Christ, Paul. Get off our back. It's no big deal. Paul's response to that is, it, what's a big deal is that you're not even giving one thought to the good of your brother or your sister. That's a problem. And particularly, we need to be thinking about newer believers. Um, if, you, if you've been following Jesus for any amount of time at all, you're being looked at in terms of the way you do your life. It's just how that works. So the question is, are we inadvertently causing harm through our choices? Second guideline, chapter 9, winning the lost. Does this thing help you win others to Christ? In chapter 9, Paul confronts them with their motives. Hey, in these choices you're making, are you all concerned about winning unbelievers to the Lord? Is there any sense in which you're sacrificing time or money or agenda or priorities or preferences to win people to Jesus, to connect the gospel in relationship to them? Is there any sense you can say you're sacrificing or laying down any rights? We need to ask ourselves the same question. So, for example, if you're retired, you've got extra time on your hands, can you lay down the right to that time in order to serve those in need? How can you arrange that schedule such that winning the lost is a priority? Another example would be if you're financially set, you have some extra money, can you give the right to that, you have to that money, right, to fund a kingdom initiative of some sort? Maybe you're a college student, right? You've got a spring break coming up. Is you, like, the right to, could you lay that down and go on a mission trip? Like, these are the kinds of thought processes we want to be walking through. Paul reiterates this point in our text today, verse 33 of 1 Corinthians 10. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many. And here's his five-word life mission that they may be saved. People are lost without Jesus, headed to a Christless eternity. These are eternal things at stake. Where is there evidence in our life that we're caring, that we're engaging? That's the second ground rule for Christian freedom. Third, idolatry, chapter 10. This is the great work Josh did last, uh, last week question, is this gray area, is this thing an idol for you? It's important. In all this wisdom around decision-making and Christian freedom, Paul doesn't want them to misunderstand. Our hearts do replace God with idols, and we do it all the time. It's really easy. Our hearts are idol factories. And he says, flee from idolatry. Don't let good things like entertainment, sports, career, family, so become the objects of your emotional focus that like six months down the road, you look up and God was the burning center and then all of a sudden, he's just, you've drifted and he's maybe an accessory, an, an extra, an add-on that has the form but not the substance. So a good question is, and I remember someone giving this to me, um, gosh, 20 years ago or something, is what is the object of your emotional focus? What's the object of your emotional focus? Because we kind of know that. We can tell what we're, our, our days and our, our hours are dedicated to mentally and emotionally. Okay, now, that's review. Let's get into today's text. We've got two more. For, fourth one is edification. Does it build you and others up in your faith? Verse 23. All things are lawful, 
But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, this sort of Corinthian catchphrase. But not all things build up. Some versions say everything is permissible. Second time Paul quotes this back to them, and he's being a little bit sarcastic here when he essentially says, you know, guys, it isn't illegal for you to jump off a bridge, but that's not going to help you. It's not going to benefit you or anyone else. So if point number one was about love and kind of emphasize the negative, don't unnecessarily offend your brother, this point is positive. Will this decision result in others' good? This word edify, is a, it's fascinating. It's a construction term. It's, a, it's like a, a term you'd hear thrown around the work site. Um, it's a compound word in the Greek. It, mean, it means house building. House building. And it's the same word Jesus used in Matthew 16 when he said, on this rock, the fact that he was the Christ, I will build, edify my church. Same word. It's going to be used in a couple chapters from now in this conversation around spiritual gifts. What's the purpose of spiritual gifts? Why are they so vital? Why necessary? For the edifying, strengthening, building up of the church. From within and without, there are things trying to tear down you, trying to tear down the spiritual house of the church, not just big C, but little C church. And it's massively important that we're edifying and encouraging one another. So it's a central piece here. So when it comes to debatable things, it's not am I allowed, but rather will it cause spiritual growth for me and those around me? All right, so if you've got a decision to make on something you're not sure about, I want to give you like a three-step thing, and I'm not really into the three-step thing, but I'm going to give it to you anyway, because I hope it's helpful. First thing you do is you open your Bible. You open your Bible. You open your Bible to see if it's forbidden or approved, right? And then you, as you're memorizing the scriptures, as you're getting it into the sort of fiber of your life, what you find is like a computer, it's sort of the operating system of your life because it's in there. And it shapes and forms the way you think, which is huge. Psalm 119, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against God. Right, so this is vitally important that we're, we're living with open Bibles. We're interacting with the word of God because it's our authority. Second step, if the issue is untouched by the Bible, again, fill in the blank. Then we need to ask, is it going to help or hinder my faith and others' faith? And then the third step is, so this isn't sort of a didactic or cerebral process alone. Pray about it. Pray about it. Like, bring it to the Lord. Bring it in community. Okay, now, to keep going in the text, there's two hypotheticals that Paul's going to raise in, this, in their context that are likely actual examples, things they've asked about or things he's heard about. Okay, the first example is buying food at the grocery store. He just gets real life here, doesn't he? Buying food at the grocery store. Verse 25, eat whatever's sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Psalm 26. Essentially saying, don't be uptight. Like, go to the grocery store, go to the meat market, get what you need. The earth is the Lord. It's all from him. Enjoy it. And hey, by the way, say thanks. That's good. First Timothy 4, he repeats the same thing. This would have been an easy spot for the legalists to get hung up. 
Hey, you know, it's like, you know what's going on at the strip club. You know what's going on in certain places. Don't go there. The pagan temples, don't go there. That's sin. But you don't have to know everything that's going on in the back room at Homeland. You just don't. Be a human. Eat your food. Buy the groceries. You're good. Maybe an application is for us today is like only buying fair trade products and judging other Christians who don't. You just added a rule to the Bible. That's the legalism ditch, right? Let's not go there. If what's edifying is our main concern and you tend towards legalism and you sort of know it, don't tear down your brother or your sister with what you've researched and self-righteously point out to them and be the moral police, you know, pharisaically putting your finger in their chest. That, I think, is what Paul's warning against. Jesus said we're in the world, not of the world. This is for the in, in the world part, okay? Now, the second scenario is a dinner party with unbelievers. Verse 27, look at this. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then don't eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. Okay, now this is all about context. Meat that's cooked in pagan temple kitchen and served in a worship feast before an idol is a problem. It's a problem. But meat that comes from pagan temple kitchen yet is eaten in a private home with unbelievers is no problem. It's context-driven. Um, now, if that person pulls kind of a bait or bait and switch and kind of says, oh, well, this is the, the history of this meat and what are you going to do with it? And there's obviously some sort of tactic here then it's okay for you to say, hey, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus. Jesus is Lord, not that idol. Um, and it's okay to abstain at that point and say, hey, you, you got any snacks? Can I have an, an appetizer? I love you and I want to be here. But it's an opportunity for witness and it's on the ground of conscience. So let me make just sort of a, a, a pastoral present tense kind of call to you guys, um, because I think the text is, is begging me to say it. If an unbeliever invites you over for dinner, go. Go. Make time in your schedule. Make room. Do what you have, whatever you have to do. Go. Find a babysitter. Go. Right? We need Christian community. It's true. We have to be with one another, but let's not just hang out with Christians all the time. Let's get out. Um, I was in business for a bunch of, bunch of years, and some of my most memorable moments was, you know, you just get to know each other in the workplace just through the process of things. But there was a shift when I would just go, hey, you want to grab lunch? Gender appropriately. Again, gender appropriately, but with guys there, I would just say, hey, you want to grab lunch? Grab lunch, and we get an hour, hour and a half, and I just listen, hear their story, be interested, ask questions, and inevitably, maybe not that first time, but inevitably I would get into real life matters kinds of conversations and the gospel would happen through that and from that. And there's a lot, a lot of great stories that kind of came through those eight years of being in business. Okay, so edify, that's the fourth thing. Rolling along. Focus on the glory of God. That's the fifth thing, last thing. Does it make much of God? Bring, Paul brings this whole thought stream to its sort of mountaintop mount moment, kind of this crescendo in the symphony with verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Cleaning the house, playing a board game, brushing your teeth, running an errand, whatever it is, big or small, 
Do it for God's glory. So the question is, why are you doing what you're doing? Now, glory is a church word, a Bible word, that is easily like diluted of its force with overuse. So I want to just dig into it a little bit. Definition of glory is excellencies, beauties, um, the highest of virtues and value, even like radiance and iridescence and shininess, majesty, glory. So when you say or when we sing the glory of God, it's a redundancy. It's a redundancy. You're saying the same thing with both words because God has nothing but glory, right? God is altogether lovely, radiant, breathtaking, eye-popping, jaw-dropping, right? He's heart-racing, he's spine-tingling, he's knee-buckling when we meet him face-to-face. He is anti-boring. He is non-boring. There is nothing and no one and nowhere more astounding than God. Let that saturate and melt our hearts. Glory, okay? But in another sense, glory means praise or credit or to make much of. Think of it more as a verb, like the glorying of God. He means to say, when he says, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God, means everything you do, work, school, whatever it is, live for someone else's credit. Namely, God. That's a good question to ask. Whose credit, whose praise, who being liked am I looking for? A couple of scriptural examples on this glorying principle. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3. Sin is God is holy. We are not. That's true. But sin is also not glorying God. It's not making much of God. It's disregard of God in its essence, and we do it all the time by nature and by choice. Only Jesus lived glorying God fully. Okay, second example, Philippians 2. At the name of Jesus, Paul says, every knee should bow, heaven on earth, under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the what? To the glory of God, the glorying of God the Father. That means one day, and this may... Seem like, oh, really? Is that really going to happen? Is that a pipe dream? No, literally, on a day. There will be a day coming where all of creation, everything you see, every person, demons, angels, the creation that seems so quiet now will erupt involuntarily acknowledging the rightful place of the God-man, the King, Jesus Christ alone. There will be full credit Full honor, full praise of the one who made us. Glorying. Let me give you another example of this real quick. Um, we all love our thing, especially like our team to be praised. I am a, sad to say, I'm a long-suffering Cincinnati Bengals fan. Which, if you don't know football, they've just stunk for like most, like 95% of my lifetime. Bad. Well, But three years ago, we got QB1, Joe Burrow. And if you don't know that, he's the savior of an entire city, Cincinnati, where I'm kind of from. And the Bengals have just sort of resurrected like a phoenix from the ashes. 
And I know most of you aren't feeling this. In fact, I can kind of feel like all of you aren't feeling it. But just grow with me here, right? We love our thing to be praised when the Chiefs beat the Bengals, I don't know, weeks ago, whatever. It was a sad day. Joel and I were watching together. It was a sad day. But you know what I was really sad about? And I even, the witty banter text thread with my Chiefs fan friends. I said, hey, just enjoy your team being praised for the next two weeks because I know that's what you're into, your team being praised. Why could I say that? Because I wanted my team to be praised for the next two weeks. Read the posts and see all the stuff, right? That's what I wanted. It doesn't even matter who's in the uniform. We don't care about that. We just want the uniform to succeed, don't we? We want the uniform to succeed. Can you help the uniform get praised? What's that have to do with Christian freedom and choices we make? Well, the issue of idle food or movies or drinking, how you spend money is not really the point. The point is, is the trajectory of your life pointing towards God or towards you? Is the arrow of your life pointing inward towards you or outward and upward towards Jesus? So I think Paul is saying don't get all tied up in knots, legalistically looking for what you can and can't do. It's like plain, trivial pursuit in front of the Grand Canyon. It's adventures in missing the point. Right? Live your life postured before the face of God, glorying in God, and make much of Him. There's delight in the face of God. And as we glory God, you don't have to do that like as a pastor or a missionary. You do that in whatever vocation you have. This verse is what makes every vocation in the world meaningful and spiritually spiritual and potentially kingdom if we give ourselves to it. So, also, I want to make this point. Don't live life in little boxes where you're one person at work, another person at home, church, like a chameleon changing colors based on your environment. Live one life for the glorying of someone else. Namely, God. God. So who are you glorying in this decision? You just want to fit in, or do I care how it reflects on God? Andrew Wilson, one of those really smart English theologians. Aren't the, old, the smart ones English always? At least they sound smarter. He says this, and it's, I think there's all five in this one quote. If you're taking part in something which God has given, do it with thankfulness for his grace and bounty. If you're abstaining from it, do it out of the desire that other people are not made to stumble. If you're cooking for a Muslim, go to the halal store. If you're in a culture where alcohol is frowned upon, go teetotal. If your friend becomes a vegan, learn some new recipes. If your neighbor invites you for a barbecue, eat what's set before you and thank God for making cows out of beef. Food and drink matter, but the glory of God matters more. Okay, so as we draw this to a close, it, it would be easy to conclude, yeah, John, live for God's glory. That's the right thing to do. Got it. But if that's what you walked away with, I would, have you done you and the Bible a disservice? If this wasn't cl crystal clear right here, living for the glory of God is a life of joy. It's a life of joy. It's a life that leads to being deeply satisfied in God, not through God or from God or by means of God, but rather in God. 
not a cold, plastic, sterile life of sort of dutiful obligation to the killjoy dad. It's life under and for and through and near and because of God himself, who's anti-boring. Did you hear that one? Are there sacrifices in love for brother, winning the lost, fleeing idolatry, building others up in the glory of God? Unequivocally, yes. Yes, this isn't Primrose Path. This isn't like easy peasy Pollyanna. The Christian life is hard. Following Jesus is hard. There are joyless times and dark times. Absolutely true. Is there delayed gratification involved in following Jesus? Absolutely, yes. But it's not what we're fasting from that is the focus of these things, Paul says, but rather what we're feasting on. We have to be feasting on God himself. Otherwise, it is a joyless journey, devoid of intimacy or closeness or purpose or value. Make your life so God-saturated that these choices don't spin you up out, but invite you up into his presence to hear his wisdom and vision for your life. So the question is, underneath all this, chapters 8 through 10, really that Paul's getting at is, Jesus is worth it. Jesus is higher, he's better, he's stronger, he's more beautiful, he's more radiant, he's more glorious, he's worth it. Don't get caught playing trivial pursuit in front of the Grand Canyon. Let's not miss the point. Okay? There's an old catechism called the Westminster Catechism, and it asks the very first question is, what is the chief end of man? Why are we here? What's the point? What's your purpose in life? What's it matter? And the answer is a one phrase, and it's not just right and good, but it's beautiful, and it'll change your heart, change your life. The answer to what the chief end of man is, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Forever. Okay, let's pray. Spirit of the living God, you are the only one who can awaken in us um, a heart to love Jesus. You're the only one who kind of fuels, fuels and fires worship inside of us. And uh, you do know the circumstances, you know every story, you know every heart, you know what they're wrestling with pain, relational loss, struggle in the workplace, struggle at family, hard decisions that um, some are being faced with in some of these very areas. Some being ostracized at work, some being um, ignored by family and friends because they've chosen to follow Jesus. I'm asking, Lord, for grace and help and more of you. To enjoy you, God, to make much of you, that you would infuse life and help and joy for my brothers and my sisters. And I just want to take a a few moments, and I just want to be quiet. Let's have quiet, be in, in the room. 
And just whatever you've got in your life that, that you know you're kind of holding on to, either as an idol or just as a, a pain or even a hard decision, why don't you just place that before him? And let's listen for his voice. Father, we thank you for fathering us. Thank you that you are trustworthy. And since there's some who might be here tonight who are wrestling underneath all of these kinds of things you're wrestling with, is God good for me in the circumstances of my life? Is God good here and now for me? Maybe that's a real wrestle with loneliness or fear. Um, I just want to make a special invitation. Like, we're going to have some folks up here to pray afterwards. And if you kind of fall into that category, we would love to carry that with you. We'd love to pray. Jesus, we love you. Thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.